0: Good morning. What we're going to look at, we're going to do a continuation of Psalms. So this morning we're going to look at Psalm 12. Um, Psalm 12 is incredible. It's only eight short verses, and if we spend 15 minutes on each verse, we should be out here by three o'clock. Amen. It'll be a short few hours. You know, sometimes when you get up to preach and you think about what you're going to do and what you're going to say, you know, you sort of become hesitant and become hesitant because who am i to get up and share god's word who am i to try and bring anything but here's the thing right if i carry my life wondering who i am right i wouldn't do anything i wouldn't have confidence i wouldn't have i just wouldn't have any blessing in my life you see thing is when i was younger and you know i look at my own kids when i was younger i grew up very shy very hesitant, not overly confident about things. And my parents, and I've done it with my own kids, would always be very encouraging. They would always shove you into situations to try and make you confident. And I have done it so many times with my own kids that, you know, it's a natural thing to do, but we don't get it. We have to get it in our own time that there's a confidence in us, that there's something inside us. But here's what makes it even better, right? My life has changed so much by understanding what God thinks about me, and by understanding the confidence that God has given in me. You see, the thing is, if I was shy, I wouldn't be doing this. I would be hesitant. I would be nervous. I'd be afraid to do it, and I wouldn't be fulfilling what God has as a plan for my life. Even this week, it was—I um, found myself, you know, because when you make a step with God. And when you make that change in your life and you accept Jesus as your saviour. The first thing is you acknowledge that you can't do anything without him. And your life changes because of him. But it changes in practical ways. Now I stand up confident. Not arrogant. But I stand up with a boldness. I stand up with a confidence knowing that God can actually use me. And it's the same for everyone in this room. I don't possess some magic skill that just got turned on one day that makes me able to preach or makes me able to read something or even sound confident. It is because what my father has done in my life that I stand confident. So much confident this week that I stood in a school. (laughs) And it was a military school. I was in a military school teaching this week. So it falls down into your practical life. I could have never have done that 20, 30 years ago without understanding who I am in Jesus. Amen? So Psalms, if we have a look at a quick, we've been doing Psalms now for over 12 weeks. So I think it's important we just have a quick overview of what Psalms is, again, just to remind ourselves. See, the Psalms are a collection of lyrical poems. And the Hebrew name for Psalms is Tehillim. And that means praise songs. Psalms comes from the Greek title, Samoi, and that means instrumental words, or sorry, instrumental music, and words accompanying music. Sam is one of two books in the Old Testament, and they're known to be collections of work. They weren't written by one person, they weren't written at one particular time. It's thought that Psalms spans several hundred centuries. The other book that meets that is Proverbs is, again, as a collection of works. See, Moses wrote Psalm 90. David wrote 73 of the Psalms. Asaph wrote 12 of them. And Solomon wrote one or two. So it's an incredible collection that spans such a huge area of time, a huge amount of time. See, here's what the Psalms do. They express the emotion of the author about God and to God. See, the psalms, there's different types. There's psalms of lament, and they're about crying out to God in difficult circumstances. There's psalms of praise, and they are hymns showing direct admiration to our Father. There's psalms of thanksgiving where we're showing gratitude for personal provision or deliverance. Then there's the pilgrim, the pilgrim psalms, and they were used on the pilgrimages going up to Jerusalem. And there's more psalms. There's wisdom psalms. There's royal psalms. There's victory psalms. There's law psalms. There's even the songs of Zion. See, here's what the book of Psalms does for us. It reveals to us how God works in the inner life of his people. It's not incredible that the psalms do that. You see, I was amazed to, to realize and to hear that there are certain churches in America who are big churches are now preaching and just making statements that for the Christian that the New Testament or sorry, the Old Testament doesn't really matter anymore, that it's not really that important, that it was the old way, and it's all about whatever we want. It's incredible that they have walked so far from God that they are now determining which is important in His Word and which is not, and even which books are important. And yet, we see in the Old Testament and in the book of Psalms. They show how God interacts with us. It encourages us to praise our Father and it shows us who he is and what he's done for us. And they cement his faithfulness to us in times of trouble. Haven't we been singing about that this morning? That in times of trouble, in times of darkness, where do we run to? And yet this is what the Psalms do, It cements it for us and it makes it real. And they show us how central his word is to our lives. So now let's look at Psalm 12. Okay, we put it up on the laser display. So Psalm 12 begins with, and I'm going to read from the NIV version initially. Okay, help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. May the Lord silence all flattering lips. And every boastful tongue. Those who say, by our tongues we will prevail. Our own lips will defend us. Who is the Lord over us? Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. And the words of the Lord are flawless. Like silver purified in a crucible like gold refined seven times. You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. And it's incredible that to look at it in Psalm 12, but really when you read it, and I know the NIV is one of the most common Bibles that we use, the NIV doesn't seem to do it justice or doesn't seem to get what has been said by David. So let's have a look. See, there's musical instruction right at the start. If you look at some of the Bibles, um, some versions, they actually start with the first line in chapter 1 and they go from 1 to 9. And other versions, they have the musical instruction at the top and then it goes from 1 to 8. So if you're on verse 2 and it doesn't match mine, then you're using a different Bible. So, many of the psalms contain what's called a superscription. Superscription isn't when you have sky sports, sky movies and everything else. A superscription is some information that was written on the outside cover. And sometimes these were the name of the author. Sometimes they were the name of the collection. Sometimes they were the type of psalm. And sometimes it was about the occasion of the psalm. And then there were some musical notations. In Psalm 12, the superscription tells us that it's a psalm of David. It also s- states, according to the, I'll get this right, sheminith. Okay, so that's the statement there. That's right. Now, some um, of the commentaries say that the sheminith is an eight-stringed instrument. Okay. Other commentaries, and this sort of makes sense when we read through Psalm 12 say that it's a musical term that literally means the eighth octave. And it's supposed to be the lowest note that the male voice can sing. And it would have set the tone or the key for the accompanying music. And we find that this same superscription is found in Psalm 6. You see, Psalm 12 is a song of public worship. And it's clear that it's a psalm of lament. And it's somber. And it's sung in a low key. And that's what the musical inscription their superscription does right at the start. It sets the tone. Now, we all love a sing-song, something we can sing along to, and everyone loves a nice catchy tune. But what if we're singing a song that's miserable? A song of lament. A song that doesn't really cheer us up. And yet, this is what David is doing. You see, Psalm 12 begins abruptly we don't have a nice lead in and we get to the catchy part of the song it just starts abruptly help lord for the godly man ceases for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men what a way to begin a song like help other versions say save and it's like save and instantly what we find is david is crying out to the lord so he goes straight in, bang, miserable, we're crying out to the Lord. Okay? But David's distress comes from seeing that the godly men have vanished. Now, what does that mean, that the godly men have vanished? Some of the books talk, or some of the commentaries talk about that the men just lost their influence, the men aren't around anymore. But more so, what it looks like, Psalm 12 relate to a dark time in David's life. And we've seen as we go through the Psalms that the things in David are getting darker and more difficult. David's distress comes from seeing that the godly men had vanished. And it's thought that these refers to the events in witnessed in 1 Samuel 18.22. So I'll summarise them for you. You see, God is prospering David. And at the same time as David's prosperity grows and his favour grows in the Lord... Saul is becoming more and more jealous. When they return from a battle with the Philistines, crowds come out to greet them. And they come out particularly to greet Saul, but they sing of how Saul has struck down thousands. But they also sing of how David has struck down tens of thousands. Now, what a greeting, huh? You're out there, you've just come back from a battle, and you're the center of attention because you're the king but everyone is singing about your right-hand man. Wouldn't that get you into a rage, into jealousy? But see, bear in mind too what's happening with Saul in his life. He's moving further and further away from God. He's losing favor, but he's choosing to step away from God. So David was becoming more popular than Saul. Saul didn't like this. Now, David had become friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. Jonathan. And Jonathan tells him of a plot to kill him. So David eventually flees for his life. When he flees for his life, he goes to the town of Noob. And he goes to a priest there called Ahimelech. (laughs) He goes to a priest called Ahimelech. All right. So he goes to a priest called Ahimelech. It's almost like Abimelech, but with a H. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's what makes it difficult to pronounce. Now, David can't go to Ahimelech and reveal to him that, listen, I'm on the run from David or from Saul. He's out to get me. right? So he comes up with a story. I'm on a secret mission. Now, the, the priest sees him trembling and sees that he's on his own. So it sort of arouses his suspicion anyway, but not in a bad way. So David said, No, I'm on a secret mission. Okay. Now I have no food. I have no weapons. Can you help me? So the priests trust David because he sees David as a godly man. He sees that David is anointed. Why wouldn't he trust David? So they've no food. So what they arrange to do is the bread from the temple that's changed every day, they give them that bread. And then he says, Well, we've no weapons. But how about this for irony? There's one weapon and we have it wrapped up and it's under the it's under the table. Okay? And it's Goliath's sword. So the weapon that David now carries is Goliath's sword. Doesn't God turn things around in an incredible way? But see the thing is, David wasn't truthful about what he was doing. But the priests knew him of a warrior as the warrior and of the man of God, so they trust him. Now, all of this was witnessed by Doeg the Edomite. Now, he was the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So he saw what was going on. He saw David, he saw him getting fed, he saw his men getting fed, and he saw him being Goli- getting Goliath's sword. Further on, when you read through uh, 4 Samuel, we find that David, Saul is getting more and more frustrated Because he doesn't know where David is, but he knows that David's been looked after. He knows that David is out of his reach. And it just descends him even more, distant from God and into a rage. So Saul goes into a rant. Why are these people helping David? What can David do for them? David can do nothing for them, yet I'm the king. And it's at this stage that we find that Doeg, the Edomite, reports to Saul... That David was looked after by the priests in Nob. So Saul summoned Abimelek <laughs> Saul summoned the guy. <laughs> Saul summoned the priests of Nob. And here's what he did when he asked them what they did. They were honest and open. They thought they were serving a man of God. They believed that they were doing God's will. So they had nothing to hide. Yes, we did this. And they praised David at the same time. That was it. Saul had enough. Saul called on his guards to kill all of the priests. But the guards wouldn't do it. You see, the guards recognized that the priests were anointed by God. And they said, we can't do this. So David, or Saul, turns to Doeg, and he kills them all. All in all, at the end of that day, 85 priests were put to the sword because Saul was now so distant from God. And additionally, all of the men, women, children, and livestock in Nob were put to the sword, all because of Saul's rage. So now we know why David is in sorrow because he sees. What Saul has done. He sees that the godly men have gone because they were killed, they were wiped out. Now, here's the other impact of this. If you think about it, David is now at the mercy of Saul's politics. And Saul's politics are this that he won't be upstaged by anyone else and he will kill anyone in his way. And he will kill the faithful, he will kill the people that God has anointed so he can retain his position. And there's two impacts on that. Well, the godly men are gone. The other side of it is the godly men that are left will stay quiet. They will lose their influence. They will no longer speak out. It's not safe to speak out now in Saul's world. So the, unman- the ungodly men are gone. If we read verse 2 from the New, King's James, New King James, it says, They speak idly, everyone with his neighbour. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. Who have said, with our tongues we will prevail. Our own lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? I think it's notable that one of the core issues here about the evil deeds of men are words. Not actions, but the words. See, we have this mighty warrior of God and we've read throughout the Psalms through Samuel the battles that he has been involved in, the things that he has done in the name of the Lord. And now we find him hamstrung by words and he's fearful of words and he's afraid of what's been said about him and what's been spoken about him and who is speaking about him. See, the godly people don't have the influence anymore. And David's life is now at risk. But here's the thing about words. If we read from verse 2, words mean nothing anymore. We just speak idly to each other. And people would rather flatter one another than tell the truth. So if I want to stay on Saul's good side, what am I going to do? I'm going to puff him up. I'm going to tell him what he wants to hear. All of a sudden, what I say now means nothing, has no value. And it also says that people speak with double hearts. Now, double hearts is, um, the Hebrew translation is a bit more cutting. Double hearts sound like, uh, will I, won't I, I'm not quite sure, I haven't made up my mind. But the Hebrew translation is even more cutting. It says a heart and a heart. See, so it means that you have two hearts. It means you've got your church face and your home face. It means that you pretend to be one thing in front of God. And when you're with your neighbours, you pretend to be another thing. And what does that do? Well, it undermines trust. Because if I say one thing to you, another thing to somebody else, and neither of them match up, how can you trust me? How can you trust what I say? And these were the advisors to Saul. These were the advisors to David. How can you trust what they say when they speak? When they double speak? See, one pretends to be good and honest. And the other gives way to sin. And it's amazing that we talk about, you know, churches saying that the Old Testament is no longer relevant. Yet that is so relevant to us today, about having a double heart. Do I claim to live for Jesus, yet my lifestyle says I don't live for Jesus? Do I claim to know God, and yet I couldn't care less what God says? Again, I'm being double-hearted when I go that way. See, it also lays heavy on David's heart that his deception to the priests of New cost them their lives. Now, we know that Saul was so far removed from God that they would have been killed anyway. But David knows that part of his deception contributed towards that. But here's the thing. We can see that David has an expectation of God. And he prays in verse, four, or sorry, in verse 3 for God to deal with the evil. By cutting it off. So why is there an emphasis on words? Well, words are incredibly powerful. You see, God spoke the world into being. And in the earlier Psalms, when we looked at Psalm 8, we learned that children can speak things into being. It's with words that we accept Jesus as our Saviour. And our lives will be changed. But it's also with words that we can cut other people down. We can speak things into people's lives that aren't true, that we don't believe, that show my malice towards somebody that shows what I think, not what God thinks, I devalue words. See, there's so much emphasis throughout the Old and New Testament about the power of words. That's why our Father keeps drawing our attention to it. How many times do you read through different passages and it's about words, it's about what we speak, it's about the language that we use? There's an incredible importance on words. See, if we say things that we don't believe, well, for starters, you know, what's the worst that can happen? We're hypocrites. But there's more to it than that. Because if I start saying things I don't believe, it makes me distant from God. Why would I say that Christ saves, that he has changed my life if I don't believe it? And then if I say that to you, it has no bearing, it has no witness. Because you look at me and you see that, "Eh, I don't think so, you're lying. And then I try to undermine what God is doing in people's lives because I'm as false. But that's not the case. You see, if we say things that we don't believe, we no longer believe the truth that those words carry we will lose the influence. See, when I speak the truth, and when I can show you examples in my life of how God has changed things, how God has worked through things, how God has been faithful to me, if I don't believe them, why would I share them with you? Because I have my church face on, it's the right place to do it, and it sounds good, and then I go carry on living my life. I devalue the words. I devalue what God does in my life. And then it just becomes a talking point, not a life-changing happening. It just becomes a set of circumstances that I just waffle through. And yet that's not what we're to be. We're to be a reflection of Christ in our lives. What is What God has done in my life has to shine out. Wherever I say, listen, God shines in my life, you can sort of see it. But I'm a miserable get. See what I mean? It's false. So that's why words are important. And you can see David's frustration that words no longer mean anything. The wicked have taken the words and diluted them down to the point where it's better that I say, I love that dress you have on, the colour suits your eyes. And you had to turn around and say, my God, it suits our eyes, but they're both crossed. And (laughs) I haven't seen that colour in a long time. (laughs) I'm only messing. So I devalue words. So David continues to tell us about the wicked. Okay? So they move on from having false words, from not believing what they're saying. Where does that lead to? Well, now what takes precedence? What's important now? My opinion. What I think. And here we go. If the world was based on what I think, we'd live in a terrible place. It'd be great fun for me, but it would be a terrible place. And it says that God's they they no longer have regard for God's authority. So now they're saying, we don't need God. You know what? What we say matters. Our lips are our own. Forget about what God wants us to say. Let me tell you what I want to say. I'm the guy who says the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. Don't read it. It's not relevant for Christians. You see how it happens? Push God aside. Devalue the words. Now I start spouting my own rubbish. And that was where David's frustration was coming from. Seeing that there was arrogance. Seeing that God is pushed aside. And when we push God aside, what's that? Separation from God. What's separation from God? Sin. So, sin starts to creep in. Sin starts to take over. Sin starts to get hold. And then he wonders why everyone's wicked. Why everyone is evil. Because they no longer have a place for God in their lives. My opinion matters more. What I say matters more. What I think matters more. And then I'm going to get into a row with people. Because of what I continue, or what I consider is more important than you. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lord it over you. And then we're going to have a row. Because my opinion matters more. Your opinion matters more. Everyone's opinion matters more. We've seen it in our recent referendums. How the voice of the godly don't matter. You're all religious zealots. That's why you don't want divorce. That's why you don't want abortion. There's no place in our country for God anymore because you're not compassionate. And everything is turned upside down. And what is truth now becomes a lie. And what's a lie is now peddled as the truth because words no longer matter. If you look at our recent elections, I was looking down through some of the... um, some of the, um, on the, on the If you look at the European elections and the candidates on the European, while they might have subscribed to a local party like Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil, you also see what party they will be aligned with when they go to Europe. And it's ironic, you look at this, some of the Fianna Gael candidates are aligned with the Christian Democrats. Christian Democrats. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the idea of a Christian is somebody who reflects Christ. I'd say if we looked at the idea of the Christian Democrats in Europe, it doesn't represent Christ. What does it represent? It represents the wicked. It represents people who speak idly. It represents people whose words are more important than the word of God. Yet if there was a party called the Christian Democrats who behaved like Christians, we would vote for them because they represent what we want. When they speak, their wisdom wouldn't be theirs. It would be the word of God and it would have sense, and it would have meaning, and it would have direction. I noticed there was um, a recent one of the candidates in North Dublin had an issue with her backstory. And what came out of it was that essentially everybody said, okay, there's no truth, there's lies. And because this girl was a new candidate, everyone decided, well, hang on, she's not backing down on her story. She's now telling lies, okay? And it was a case of, do you know what? She's perfect for politics. She's made for it. And it's not a terrible thing that we don't hold anyone to account anymore. We can't. Because it's like, no, you can't say anything. You can't do anything. So the importance of words and how moving towards our own ways of thinking, what we matter, what we care about, And moving away from God. We rely on our own wisdom. Nobody is going to lord it over me. But here's the thing. So we have this song that we're singing in public. We're singing about how the godly men are gone. We feel David's sorrow. We feel his frustration. And we all get in a room together and sing it. And come out smiling. But here's the incredible part about this. Now it's time for God's response. Amen. Verse 5 says, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. See, the cry in verse 1, it started with a cry, is now answered. God does not forsake his people. In some translations, the force word help is actually changed to save. And the thing about save is, in Hebrew, it's the noun form of the verb save. And this is seen as God directly answering the cry. There's no distance between chapter verse 1 and verse 5. God is now answering directly. Some of the commentaries put it like this. How is God aroused? By the prayers and pleas of his people. Why is God aroused? Because David is oppressed and in need. When is God aroused? Well, the verse says, the Lord says now. He acts in speed. And what does God do when he's aroused? He places David in. In the place of safety that he desires. You see, God promises to put us in a place of safety. But where is this place of safety? In verse 6 it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. You see, the place of safety for us is God's word. We see now such a sharp contrast between the words of man and the words of God. In God's word, there is a safe place. In the words of man, they're hollow, they're empty. The words of man are idle, vain, deceitful, arrogant, and even boastful. But God's word is not. The words of God are pure like silver refined seven times over in a fire. You see, why they said about seven times over in a fire was that it was the harshest test that could be done at that time. They would dig a pit in the ground, they would light a fire, and that fire would have to be incredibly hot. It was the hottest thing and hottest action that they knew at that time. And it was for purifying silver. See, the extreme heat would separate the dross from the pure metal. And dross is used in the Bible to symbolize impurity. Now, every time the silver was tried in the fire, the fire would get hotter and hotter and hotter. So when it went in the first time, and then the dross would come to the surface and the dross was removed, and then it would be refined again and again and again getting hotter each time. Now, we don't like that about things. We don't like it getting more and more difficult or more and more uncomfortable. And yet, that's what God wants us to go through, is to take us out of our comfort zone so that he can refine us, so that he can purify us. So it's not going to be easy. All we have to do is give way to God and allow him to purify us. He purifies us through his word. He purifies us through trials. He purifies us. Because he loves us. Not because he loves putting us through trials and seeing how do we do, how do we react. He purifies us because he loves us. A silversmith was asked about the process of refining. And one of the questions was, how do you know that the silver is now right? And he said, it's like this. When the silver is ready, you can see a reflection in it. See, the words of man are dross, and they have to be removed from our lives. And the words of God are pure, valuable metal that lasts forever. Now we come to the final verse. And bear in mind we're singing a song. So we didn't have such a good start in this song, and it starts a bit miserable. So you hope now that we're going to have a happy ending. Amen? No? Afraid not. (laughs) See, there's been a great flow through Psalm 12. There's been a cry of oppression. There's been an explanation why. And there's been an explanation about the sorrow that brought it. And there's a contrast between the wickedness of man and the purity of God's words. See, it ends in verse 8 and it says this. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Charles Sporgen puts it like this. He says, It's a return to the fount of bitterness which force made the psalmist run to the wells of salvation. So David is reminding himself, Why did I turn to God in the first place? It's because wickedness is all around. It's because things that are wrong are put up on a pedestal. And things that are right and honourable and of God are discarded or written off. The circumstances that had caused David to grieve, they hadn't changed. See, sin is all around us, but also we struggle with sin. We struggle with sin around us and in us. And see, like David... We will also suffer because of the sin of other men's hearts. You see, we will be persecuted by people who have no Lord. They don't want to hear what we have to say. They don't want to hear who Jesus is. They don't want to hear anything about it because you're a religious nut. And that's what you get written off of. In the last few referendums, that's what we've been written off as, as. Religious nuts with nothing to say who lack compassion. And yet we have a God who gave his son so that nobody would be lost. But we don't want to hear about that sort of compassion because that's not compassion in my mind. That's not the compassion that I thought about or I speak about proudly and boastfully. And yet, that is the true compassion that we need. And that is the true compassion that's available to everyone. Amen. And see, the thing is, what eventually will happen is the things of God will not be allowed to be spoken. We've already seen in other countries and we think, yeah, that's China, that's here, that's there. They don't want to hear about God. It's going to happen here. It's going to happen here. There's a, there's a term you often hear people talk about hate speech. Nobody really describes what hate speech is. If we keep it general, we can write off everything as hate speech. And yet we know that when we say Jesus loves you, we speak in love. And yet people will take that as hate speech because they don't want to know about Jesus and you're persecuting them which are religious flim-flam. And you won't be allowed to say it anymore. And you won't be allowed to say a lot of things anymore because it'll be hateful. Again, how the wicked are exalted. How progressive we are as a country that if we stop people from talking, if we stop people from sharing about God because it makes sinners uncomfortable. But see... Like David, we have seen that God answers when he cries out. The songs we sung this morning were about crying out, about how God answers, about difficult situations, how God stands beside us, how we go through everything. There was no darkness when we were standing in Christ's light. We sang all these songs this morning. We're living this. We're living this psalm that when we sing, we're making a declaration And here's the thing, like David, we can find a refuge. We can find a place of safety in the words of our father. We've seen the power of words. But let's draw on the power of faithful words. Our father's words. Because they have meaning. They are true. They're full of promise. And they never fail. And here's the thing. David talks about injustice. Injustice. And we see injustice all the time. We see things, you look at situations in our country and you see injustice. And what can we do about it? Nothing at a human level. But what can we do about it? We pray about it. The same way David did. See, no fear of injustice. Because we're the beneficiaries of the greatest injustice ever. You see, up until that time, the harshest test you could do was take some silver and burn it at an extremely high temperature and purify it. But there was another test. God asked Jesus to take our sin, to take all sin, to die for us. And yet, what an injustice, because Jesus was blameless, was pure, like that purified silver. He was pure beyond it. Why would the Son of God have to do this? But he did do it. He accepted the test willingly because he knew what the end result was. Jesus took our sin and our place so that we could have redemption, that we could have salvation, that we could no longer be separated from God. You see, God made an incredible, injustice, in one sense, sacrifice. So that none of us would be lost. All who cry out to him will be saved. Not only do we have refuge in God's word. But we also have refuge in Jesus Christ. And see we shouldn't be afraid to be put through the refiner's fire. We should allow God to test us. We should allow God to treat us as a silver that needs to be purified. If I speak with my lips and say my lips are my own, I'll say I'm as shiny as I'm ever going to be. I'm incredibly bright silver. And there's no room for God. And yet God says, no, I want to purify you seven times. And this is the beautiful thing about this. See, God wants to refine you. God wants you to be more like him. And when he finally refines you to where you want to be, He will look into that silver and he will see his reflection. Amen. See, God works all things for his own glory and for the good of those who love him. Amen. Amen. So that's our story of Psalm 12. (laughs) And it is, it's an incredible work. It's an incredible piece of scripture. It's laid out perfectly. And yet it's a guide for our lives. Because that's one of the important things of Psalms is that they end up as a guide. So this week I'd encourage you to read Psalm 12. Read it through. Understand it. If you don't understand it, we have the Holy Spirit who can teach us. Who can teach us to understand the difficult things. But above all, take it to your heart that you have a Father who will not see you oppressed. Who will not see you in a dark place. All you have to do is call out to him. And he will rise. He will respond to you. He will not leave you on your own. And then he will take you on a journey of purification. And he will make you amazing. Amen. Amen.